it's more like you sound like you're calling from like the you're calling from the uh, from the moon landing module in 1968. <laughs> it's Friday, September 4th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, master student in civil engineering and conqueror of Belgium. And with me today are Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News and international ophef generator, and Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and moon landing denier. Right. Where do we begin with all that? Uh, I, where, where, where? I, I mean, what I think is funny is is that you two apparently think the moon is real. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea yeah. you guys were such suckers. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate, Molly? Um, I, I, how did this even come up? I don't remember this at all. Why we why we started we talking were... about this? We were talking about the moon. Yeah, why were we talking about the moon landing? We were talking about fakes. We were talking about the moon landing, and then I told Paul to ask me about this on the podcast because I have an extremely embarrassing story about the moon landing (laughs) being faked, which I'm going to, you know, sacrifice myself for the sake of our (laughs) listeners. So the first guy I dated in college, like my first sort of like serious kind of adult relationship, we, I went to... (laughs) university in washington dc and my parents had come up for the weekend to visit they were like meeting the boyfriend it was a big deal and we had decided to go to the smithsonian's air and space museum and basically you walk in and then they have like all this stuff from the moon landing from the i think it's the apollo 13 one yeah or 12 Mm -hmm. i don't remember and uh my the guy that i was dating turns to my dad and was like haha i can't believe that they have all this stuff for this thing that was faked and it turned out that he thought that the moon landing was fake. Right, okay. And but he did believe in the moon. Yeah, he, be- yeah. he believed in the moon, which, I mean, oh. sucker. But he did not believe. He genuinely <laughs> thought that the moon oh. landing was done in, like, a studio or something. Right. And this, of course, became an immense running joke, where every time I would start dating somebody, my parents would be like, mm, did you ask him about the moon landing? <laughs> <laughs> and then you dated an actual yeah. rocket and scientist. And now I'm dating an actual rocket yeah. scientist, and my dad could not stop making jokes about this <laughs> when we went to the Air and Space Museum when we were in Washington, D.C. last year. So mm. yeah. yeah. How much longer yeah. did this relationship last after this? Not uh, very long. Startling. <laughs> <No. laughs> I mean, we we left the Smithsonian, and I think that was about it. Like, I'm not I'm not someone who feels like I'm going to break up with somebody in a public museum. But that was about yeah. the end of it. Yeah. You, maybe you could have taken him to the moon landing studio and broken up with him there. That yeah, that would have been yeah. funny. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but of course, I mean, I I, I did notice that uh, the, 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 the I've seen I haven't seen the moon much lately in the last few weeks, and at the same time, the Alkmaar cheese auction has been suspended. So I think there's a connection there. There's definitely. I don't know what it is, but it's, you know, it cannot be coincidence, that right? <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah, and Paul, uh, you you've managed to uh, ex- expand your territory um, th- th- this summer as well. well. So you've been busy. But what I think is funny about this is, is that it turns out that Paul also believes that Belgium is real, which is, yeah. I mean, come on, guys, like, you're smarter than this. Stop being such people. Well, well, uh, uh, unlike the moon, I actually landed once in Belgium, so I know it's a real place. Um, yeah, uh, what happened? Uh, I come from Roosendaal, that's a uh, city close to the border with Belgium, and I read an article on the NOS the other week that... Um, they corrected the border uh, around Rosendaal with yeah. Belgium. Um, well, technically speaking, they always knew that the border uh, wasn't correctly because in 
in uh, between the Netherlands and Belgium, they have these poles, these sort of markers that show how the border runs. Um, but when they placed them two centuries ago or something, um, there was an, a canal over there and the border ran directly in the middle of the canal. Yeah. So they decided to put this marker um, on the other side of the canal. Um, the canal was a long time ago filled in, yeah. um, but, the, uh, but the border marker uh, always remained at the same place. So mm. now they finally decided to uh, to put it in its uh, correct spot. Um, but what the uh, municipality of Esser, which is in Belgium, and uh, Rosendale had done was they sort of marked the border also in the street. So there was a line running um, in the middle of the street where the border was yeah. supposed to be. But the one who uh, drew it over there didn't know where the correct border was. So um, when they moved the marker, they decided to redraw the line as well. So yeah. I thought it was... Um, pretty interesting to see that when the Netherlands conquered 100 uh, square meters of, of soil from Belgium, that yeah. they immediately uh, redid the, the streets over there. So mm -hmm. classic, but yeah, then, classic yeah. Dutch move. To, to be fair, I mean, it's, it's progress from about 100 years ago when you know they, they would spend three months fighting over that, that that amount of territory in the First World War and lose half a million soldiers and <laughs> yeah, still not exactly. make any progress. And still, still not make any progress. progress. Nothing yeah. would change. Well, yeah. We we didn't know how many people died on that uh, p uh, small well, piece of road over there, yeah. so it could be somewhere some something yeah. around that number. But this is now one of those situations, Paul, where if you cross the street in Rosendale, you have to quarantine for fourteen days when you cross back over because you've crossed into Belgium. Yeah, and I think you 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 also crossed into the Antwerp province exactly. of Belgium, Very which dangerous. is an orange. So it's very dangerous over there, yeah. But at least uh, the the uh, you know a couple of months ago when Belgium closed its borders, um, uh, you had these these cases, for example, in Rosenau, where one half of the street was Belgium and one half of the other street was the Netherlands. So they yeah. just put a fence and some concrete blocks on the middle of the road. Um, they were very very careful in in putting that exactly on the on the on the right spot of the border. So mm -hmm. yeah, uh, that was th th those were interesting times. So, so speaking of international um, disputes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, uh, I guess my title alludes to something very strange that happened to me on Twitter yesterday. Where um, there Wait, was a, this, there was, are you going to talk about the Blendle guy? Is that what we're doing here? I, th I think that's what yeah. it is. Oh, exciting! Is yeah, uh, we, we're going to get into the third Copper House story quite shortly. But um, the, the, in the course of this, uh, so, some guy who runs Blendle or used to run Blendle, I think now doesn't anymore. Alexander he sold Clipping, it, yeah. he sold it. Yeah, um, and now just hangs about on Twitter for most of the days. Um, so we put up a tweet that I'd mentioned. <laughs> Being about Copper extremely House. dumb, just real yeah. dumb. Yeah. Well, he, still, he, he just. I mean, I, I just stuck up a. I just stuck up a tweet as I do, just saying this is happening. Um, and he put this up and saying, "Oh, look, there's an international outcry." Um, and yeah. I actually no, I retweeted something by Ben Coates. Yeah. Actually, it was more than that. So he said there's an international outcry, and then put it, then pointed to my tweet, which referred to Ben's tweet. And of course, neither of us is actually outside the Netherlands. So I sort of mentioned yeah. this to him, and he said, "Oh, but I never said you were." You know, so <laughs> what's the point of your tweet then? If you're trying to yeah. show there's an international outcry by retweeting people who do not actually live outside the country, what what do you what is the point of you as a person? Yeah. <laughs> The thing I found, well, I mean, I, I can't, no one can answer that question. Maybe his mother can, I don't know. Um, but the thing I found sort of the most amusing about this is, like, to select you and Ben as two people, like, representing the foreign media or, like, a foreign kerfuffle <laughs> when you're, like, the two most integrated people in this country. And also, Ben is not a journalist. So, like, why mm. is what he puts on Twitter, like, qual classify as, like, 
the sort of foreign media kind of doing stuff. Anyway, it was it was yeah. impressively dumb from someone who I had never heard of before. Um, and so went oh. to go look at him on Twitter and was like, wow, this is impressively <laughs> dumb, even for someone who's just impressively dumb on Twitter. Yeah, this is a guy, this is one of these classic guys who's made a lot of money from sort of, uh, media innovation, is always held up as like, you know, this, 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 this pioneer of new media, even though he's completely hopeless at it. It's, it's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, these like tech guys, they get you get like one thing. So like this is yeah. your yeah, and like then all of a sudden like you're supposed to be like you've had one good idea that's come to fruition and now yeah. we're supposed to assume that you are a genius. Like I don't know. I think you should have to come up with like three good ideas that come to fruition before anybody lets you have a TED talk. I think those should be the rules. <laughs> yeah, and the funny thing is that Ben Coates is of course a Dutch national. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. 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 Yeah, he just he just wrote in in English. Yeah. yeah, that's okay. The next time we log on to Twitter, this guy's gonna have a Luxembourg flag in his bio. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> or I will. One of the two. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, who's gonna go to go full Luxembourg first? Oh God, as long as it's not me. <laughs> Moving on to other Ophef. Um, well, this week actually was dominated by one and only one Ophef. Uh, but unfortunately, it turned into a real news story, <laughs> so we couldn't, you know, discuss it as the OPEF of the week. We will talk about it later uh, in the podcast in the second half. It was Ferdinand Trapperhaus's wedding. So instead, I chose something else that happened not this week, but the week before that. So I, I think that still counts. Um, it is about a photo of King Willem-Alexander and Queen Maxima, which shows them breaking social distancing rules while on holiday in Greece. The photo showed the royal couple posing with and standing very close to a restaurant owner on the island of Milos, which is in Greece. Um, the government's communication agency, RVD, initially declined to comment, saying that the king and queen's holiday is a private matter. That's that's sort of their approach always, right? That they, they, they decline to comment, even though it's really easy to comment, just say that they're sorry and... You know, that's yeah. it. Yeah, but soon after that, the uh, official royal family's uh, social media accounts posted an apology stating that they didn't pay co- close attention to the social distancing rules in the spontaneity of the moment. Um, we should have done so because keeping the, uh, to the corona rules is essential in keeping the virus under control, the statement read. Mm. Coincidentally, the royal family released a series of new portraits uh, of the king and queen's daughters two days after the OPEF, and the everyday didn't complain as loudly as they normally do when paparazzi photos of the king and queen on their two million euro speedboat were widely shared on social media so mm. they did a little, little bit of damage control over there i think yeah yeah so so yes yeah, so, so that kind of uh, blew over quite quickly i yeah. have uh, more interesting king news that just broke this afternoon actually oh, oh good did what you guys it? see that there's going to be a new commemorative coin with the king's face on it and that they oh, have I... used his image with the beard Oh, scandal. Wow. Scandal. scandal. Yeah. Is that scandal or is that progress? Progress I'm not for sure. beards. The image, though, makes it look like he yeah. does not have any teeth. Um, so mm. I think the bigger problem is, is the fact <laughs> that it, it's not a it good appears that they've dentistry. drawn this from an image of the king without his dentures in. Um, but the, the beard looks fine. <laughs> well, I think, I think that's a good representation of his constitutional position. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is true. Maybe it's a metaphorical uh, situation that they're, they're yeah. doing here. Yeah, well, I guess it is kind of the first bearded... The first beard on a Dutch coin for what, 125 years? Something yeah, like I think so. so yeah, at least because yeah. I think William the uh, Third yeah, had a massive him? beard. Did have thought so? Um, it was kind of vogue at the time. Yeah, I think so, and I think Queen Emma didn't have a beard. I doubt it. 
No. Or so, yeah, I th- or so I think she it's... She could have been uh, a beard, but she didn't have a beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to the new uh, bearded coins. Yeah, me too. In this week's episode, we'll give you a small recap on what happened in the Netherlands during our summer break. And in the second half, we'll discuss last week's news, including possibly the biggest political scandal ever, Justice Minister Vert Rapperhaus' wedding. <laughs> Half a year ago, the three of us were looking forward to a summer full of bloody battles and political backstabbing as coalition parties CDA and D66 were going to choose their new leaders for their upcoming general elections in March. In May, our hopes were shattered when D66 only had one serious candidate and CDA Crown Prince and Finance Minister Wopke Hoekstra decided not to run for his party's leadership, leaving the roads open for his competitor, Health Minister and car salesman Hugo de Jonge. But we couldn't have been wrong more. Uh, Paul, tell us why we were so wrong. And does it have anything <laughs> to do with Malta? No, yeah, a little bit. A I little think. bit. But, but, a little but bit. Not Indirectly. Come on, indirectly. let me work a Malta reference in here. Yeah, you're really you're really hitting on Malta, right? I know, Malta's been my favorite European country to make fun of lately. The CDA leadership election turned out to be a major disaster, uh, only comparable with the party's legendary congress in 2010 about the question whether to join a sort of coalition with Geert Wilders' PVV party. Um, yeah, only a days before the deadline, a couple of months ago, two more candidates announced they would run for the party's leadership election. Uh, those were Deputy Minister Mona Keiser and notoriously independent and critical MP Pieter Omtzigt. Uh, and that smashed the party's board's uh, wishes uh, of an uncontested, smooth win for their preferred candidate, Hugo de Jonge. Kaiser dropped out in the first round, but Omtzigt turned out to be a popular candidate, not only within, but also outside the party. Yeah, and that was when the real fun and games started, wasn't it? Indeed, because the second round of the leadership elections had to be redone after an ethical hacker pointed out security flaws in the digital voting system. The issues were resolved, uh, after which Hugo de Jonge won, but only with a very tiny, small, very tiny margin. Mm. Um, Doubts were raised about the uh, fairness of the election after multiple reports of uh, pop-up messages that said, thank you for your vote for Hugo de Jonge, while members intended to vote for Pieter Omtzigt. Uh, and this also happened to Peter Omtzigt's own wife. <laughs> so mm. that was also very interesting. I don't know yeah. if I buy this. I think she voted for De Younga. I think she's into the car salesman look. I think she likes a guy with flashy shoes. And somehow someone saw her screen, and this is the excuse that she's using. Do, do you think she turned up outside the house in a new car? And that was when... Uh, <laughs> and and had, a, had, a, had on a set of matching blue suede shoes and a matching exactly. blue belt. It was very suspicious. <laughs> that was when the whole edifice started to fall away. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, she was very bronzed. She had a very nice tan yeah. all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. And, uh, and an immaculate haircut as well. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and that sentence, thank you for your vote for Hugo de Jonge, that immediately turned into a meme. Uh, people started to <laughs> Photoshop that sentence in, for example, a bonnetje van de Albert Heijn, or, uh, you know, mm. that screen at the ATM when you when you want to uh, re- withdraw some money, something yeah. like that. Or if you order something from bol.com, mm-hmm. it, uh, it was uh, a fun, very funny meme. I quite, quite liked the splice-up of the, what's the Australian reporter's name who interviewed Trump, who there's this, like, block of pictures of him like looking at a piece of paper and then looking at Trump oh. like he's totally crazy and in I forgot it, his name yeah I don't remember what it was but it, in uh, in this version of the meme of course the piece of paper says thank you for your vote for Hugo de Young which I found <laughs> very funny 
Yeah, so following these doubts, the party announced an independent investigation would be carried out, uh, but they also said that Hugo de Jonge would remain the party's leader, regardless of the outcome. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> and less than two days later, the party released a report that basically said that many things couldn't be checked afterwards, but everything was fine anyway. Um, Omzicht accepted the outcome, but nonetheless, many people still doubt it. Uh, and on Tuesday morning, NRC and BNR revealed that many devices had problems displaying the voting page. So the box to tick Hugo de Jonge was at Omzicht's name and Omzicht's yeah box was somewhere below him something yeah like well, it wasn't formatted properly wasn't it so that uh, it looked as if the box to tick um uh omzicht was actually next to de jonge's name and there was a blank line uh where yeah. you had to vote for omzicht so it's unclear i have a so question was... paul oh did the state hire the same developer to make the voting app as hugo de jonge hired to make the corona app and do, do this <laughs> does this thing have anything to do with one another I think you're onto something, Molly. I think that yeah. that's it. Were these people also involved in the launch of Blendle in any way? Yes, quite possibly. <laughs> Maybe this is what the Blendle guy is up to these days. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're onto something. We should have, we should, really should investigate this. So yeah, this is uh, definitely something that will um, haunt the CDA for uh, the coming months uh, 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 towards the election. So yeah, I, I, I can't wait uh, until the new developments um, are uh, revealed so yeah yes the thing i mean it it is a lot of you know everyone's been taking the piss out of it and it is real a lot of slapstick but is this possibly going to be a problem for hugo de jong in the months to come because we're only six months into the election and if he keeps on having this hanging over him that he didn't really win the leadership contest is that not bad news for him does that not weaken him as a party leader i mean i think his i think it's bad for him but i think the corona response is worse like he looks bad because of corona also i mean i think that that's going to outshadow anything that happens from the say they are election what do you think paul i think he won with 40 50 and a half percent of the votes or something yeah. so yeah he already didn't have a clear mandate um to become the party's leader and yeah all this sort of nonsense and these problems that that really doesn't help him uh with his credibility and with his uh, uh doesn't help to to enforce his position as the party leader so yeah i th- i think it could be very problematic in the coming months we had the curious incident of the vote in the night time this summer as in a vote that didn't <laughs> actually happen mps came back from recess in early august to debate the coronavirus situation and while they were there pfp leader Geert wilders called a vote on whether to raise healthcare workers pay however votes are only valid if a majority of members are in the chamber at the time and by the time they got round to counting their heads it transpired a number of coalition mps had kind of clocked off early leaving them well short of the 76 that were needed for the quota Wilders was predictably enraged and called it parliamentary sabotage and his colleagues on the opposition side agreed Jesse Klaver of Groenlinks said it was undemocratic, while Labour leader Lodewijk Asser branded it disgraceful. But Paul van Meenen of Coalition Party Dezes and Zestach attempted to explain it all away by saying the practical issues of corona and social distancing made it very hard to have more than 50 MPs in the chamber at the same time. Whatever, however relevant that uh, might be is uh, something you have to decide for yourself. Eventually they held the vote again a week later with the Coalition parties present and the MPs rejected the €1,000 bonus by a single vote. Yeah. Well, the the problem here was um, that Geert Wilders demanded a uh, personal vote so that every MP voted personally rather yeah. than uh, what they usually but, do is uh, by party. party. Vote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that MPs have a right to demand such a vote 
at all times. Yeah. But mm-hmm. because of Corona, uh, because of the coronavirus, it was agreed that they would only do that um, on on special dates because it, it, only 50 people can be present in the room rather than all 150. So they have mm. to, uh, it takes a lot of time to organize that. So it was agreed that they would do it only um on 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 specific times rather than at one random moment an mp demands it so yeah that that so what you're telling me is that wilders acted like a dick and then used (laughs) that as a club to try to blame everybody else is that correct yeah that is that is correct shocking i've never seen this happen (laughs) before in 10 years of covering dutch politics (laughs) so that was actually what happened but he's he spanned it really well because everybody believes that that uh, all these mps ran away um Mm. Because, you know, uh, uh, as soon as uh, uh, less than uh, 75 MPs are present, then he doesn't have the right to demand that anymore. So, yeah, yeah, they... yeah I mean, it was kind of underhand by Wilders. But I have to say, I, mean, I don't say this often, but I kind of think Wilders is right here. Because oh, I think so, too. It was a bit underhand for him to call the vote, but he had called the vote. And when he called the vote, there was still a majority of MPs in the, in the building. So the yeah. fact they then left, knowing yeah. the vote was going to take place, is pretty cynical. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's yeah. cynical from both sides, but yeah. yeah. Um, I think more the, cynical by the coalition parties, to be honest. Uh, yeah. This was rare occasions where Kurt Wilders gets out cynicked. Yeah, I mean, it just makes them look bad. Yeah. Why are you doing this? You know that Wilders pulls this kinds of stuff. Like, why would you allow yourself to get set up in this way? It just makes them look like bad politicians. Hmm. What I also don't understand is that um, the coalition parties didn't really, didn't immediately uh, explain it in this way, right? They, they only explained it one or two days afterwards that yeah. this was what happened so yeah. just tell a reporter that you're going to do this because Geert Wilders is being a dick uh, then everything would, would have been fine so it is also uh, a very bad in terms of communication from the coalition I think uh, mm. question is mm. the person who did the communication for this also <laughs> responsible for the corona communication <laughs> we are really onto something Molly we yeah. guys there got is it. something is going on here yes yeah Maybe uh, the moon is real. Maybe that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, the moon is real, and all the all the all, all the best developers have been kidnapped and taken there, leaving only the guy from Blendel to. And the everything. only decent communications people, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but Gordon, why is the government against giving healthcare voters uh, a pay rise? Because that was that was what the vote is all about. Because yeah, they're literally a, Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, it was basically they say they say there's no money for it. That was the reason that was given by Hugo de Jonge and uh, Tamara van Ark in a briefing to MPs on the day of the vote. Uh, but uh, my theory is that Fopke Hooks has spent it all in his outfit for Fred Fred Kapperhaus's wedding. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good or, one. <laughs> or Hugo de Jonge spent it in, uh, spent it on uh, new <laughs> shoes or. Yeah. Peter Omzik's wife has a real expensive car. Maybe that's where it went. <laughs> So, guys, do we really have to revisit this? It wasn't yes. bad enough that I had to stay in the same hotel as Rita for this whole saga. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, did you? Did. did you meet him at one point? Uh, we were, yeah, we were leaving to go get breakfast, and he was being bombarded by press, and I was very annoyed till I realized that everybody was speaking Dutch with like a Dutch accent, and then we realized that it had to be Rita because obviously it wasn't mm. Belgian people, so. Then I was more interested because I wanted to hear what he had to say. But he's, it was mostly annoying to stay in the same hotel as a head of state, I think. You didn't get to have dinner with him? And, uh, no. 
and no. send a ticky. No, no we did not. I did not get a bonacha <laughs> for for having for having a dinner with uh, with Britta. Only mm. Macron gets that uh, gets that. Yeah, gets that <laughs> honor. Yeah. So of course we are referring to the EU's recovery plan for the Corona outbreak, um, which appears to have happened ten to twenty years ago. Now it feels like, but yeah, it was apparently yeah. only a couple of months ago. Um, this, uh, debate once again pitted the dreary North against the lovely South because I assume the Northern European countries are perpetually grumpy that their food is bad. In the end, the leaders of the 27 member states agreed on a total financial package of 1.82 trillion euros. Um, that includes the EU's recovery fund composed of 390 billion euros in grants and 360 billion euros in loans. This agreement came after days of squabbling between member states in which the French and the Germans walked out of a meeting with the Dutch and the other so-called frugal countries, namely Austria, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland. Italy accused the Netherlands of blackmail, and in the midst of it all, Hungary's pseudo-dictator Viktor Orban accused Mark Rutte of hating the Hungarian people and him personally. Did I mention I was in Brussels for this nonsense? I am never going back. Also, <laughs> did I mention that following the four-day summit, there was then an argument about whether or not it was the longest session of deliberation the EU has ever had. Some people say it beat the 2000 discussion in Nice over how to deal with member states' representation within enlarged institutions, which is the most ridiculously EU thing I've ever said. In true <laughs> EU fashion, though, other people said the Corona summit was 25 minutes shorter and therefore not the longest. So are they going to have a summit uh, to determine yeah. which summit was longer? Yes, and I'm going to hide out on the island of Malta until all of that is over. <laughs> I hope they will do this on Malta. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, do you want to make any wins at the summit? Ritter won a few things at the summit, including the ability to never travel further than the Belgian border ever again. <laughs> a number of the frugal countries, including the Netherlands, increased their EU rebate. Uh, Ruta put in place the so-called emergency break, which allows any member state to object to how another member state is using their budget because the Dutch really do not trust the Spanish and the Italians to run their own economies. And there was no creation of a common debt instrument, as many had hoped. They kicked the can down the road on a number of things, including agricultural subsidies, which are a goddamn Ponzi scheme, and what to do about certain <laughs> Central European countries abandoning any pretense of democracy and just rolling right into fascism. <laughs> A lot of things happened in that sentence. Yes. <laughs> a lot of things happening, yet not very much happened. This is how yeah. I felt about the four days that I spent in Brussels, guys. <laughs> Just trying to give me that feeling. Uh, so I guess really the question that's maybe interesting to our listeners is how do we feel like the Dutch came out in the end of this? Uh, I think Margrethe did, uh, uh, I think the general consensus here in the Netherlands is that Margrethe did very well. He didn't um, give in that easily, uh, as we have seen uh, in, in those uh, three or four days. Um, and what he achieved is, uh, well, it depends on your position on the European Union, but uh, I think most people will think that he uh, got out of the can as much as he could. So uh, I think a lot of people are pretty happy with uh, what he achieved in Brussels over there. But if you are, of course, very much against the EU, then, then you uh, don't agree with anything he achieved over there, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think he did what he needed to do, basically. Yeah. And uh, I think Rutten knew, because he's a very experienced uh, um, leader in European context now. He knew there would have to be some kind of collective um, debt fund, and it was just a question of how he could how he could get it without looking like he was giving in to yeah. you know, the, the, the spendthrift South, which is how it's always caricatured in the Dutch media, which is a huge problem. But he, he, and he managed to pull it off, basically. He, they got the mutualized debt. They also got the loan. It was a mixture of loans and grants. He managed to knock down 
the amount of uh, grants in favour of more loans. Um, initially, of course, he went in saying it was it, it would have to be all loans, so there'd be no mutualised debt. But in the end, there is mutualised debt, which is kind of a bit of a breakthrough, but um, it's within acceptable limits. And I think uh, you know most the image was created uh, back in the Netherlands that uh, Rutte had played hardball, which is what yeah. he needed to do. And also, I mean, he also means he can placate the Eurosceptic uh, opposition, people like Pierre Baudet and Kurt Wilders, who would never accept any deal, but at least he can say, look, either we have this deal or we have no European cooperation, which is actually much worse look at Brexit. Yeah. Well, and I think Brexit has really, like, the Dutch, I think, really used to hide behind the British, sort of, in yeah. allowing the British to be the one to kick up their, like, sort of... Uh, less integration, more keeping things at an arm's distance, skepticism of the EU. And now that the Brits are out, the Dutch are now center stage for the sort of like, yeah, we want like less integration um, rather than more. And so I think, I mean, I think that this is going to be how it's perceived going forward, that that all of these discussions now with the EU are going to be sort of seen as the Dutch kind of taking the skeptical route um, because they're no longer overpowered by the UK, who used to sort of play that foil. And in complete uh, Dutch fashion, Mark Rutte managed to force a coalition of, uh, well, a number of countries which don't necessarily belong to each other. So, yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. also something that uh, that's that's perhaps interesting to 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 see how this development will turn out in the future in um, uh, in the European Union. If we will see more of these sort of coalitions on 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 different issues, I'm curious to see how that will play out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing that I think we all know that Ritter is very good at is building and maintaining these coalitions. So perhaps we will be seeing more of that, you know, these sort of frugal whatever or like different groups of countries coming together for one thing in the future. Um, because, yeah, Ritter has been doing it for years here and now seems to be able to be making it happen on a more European stage. Yeah, yeah and it's also, it's also interesting to see that they were able to um, sort of uh, provide some opposition against uh, the, the major countries in the European Union, such as uh, most notably France and also Germany. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it, it, it just showed that you can uh, achieve something if you don't necessarily agree with uh, those two superpowers. Yeah, that's true. But I think that my only concern here is that Rutter, he did build a coalition, which is what he's very good at doing, but he also did the other Rutter thing he tends to do, which he kind of like pandered to nationalism and made a big show. You know, a lot of, part of his argument or the argument that was, that was continually circulated by the Dutch delegation was that, you know, we've handled the coronavirus much better than the Italians and the Spanish because we haven't bankrupted our economy when, you know, actually what happened was that Spain literally got worse hit by corona because they got it first. Yeah. And it's as simple as that. And I think I was pretty cynical by Rutter in a way. And I think about I'm worried that in the longer run, uh, kind of constantly def- defaulting to this argument that it's the, the playing off the north against the south and the you know the frugal, wise, prudent countries against the ones that haven't reformed their economies is going to be very, very damaging in the long run. Especially as you know a lot of the problems that economic problems in countries like Italy, um, you know, are linked to the fact that they're in the eurozone with countries that are economically much stronger, and those countries yeah. then can you know exploit that position to get artificially low borrowing rates and um which is good for them but less good for countries that have a high high levels of debt we'll have to see how it plays out in the long run but it's uh, yeah it's uh, it, 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 he got what he needed out of it and he, he did what Ritter does very well um yeah but in, in, on the european level uh, i think uh, yeah it, it, it raises real questions about how um how well europe is going to be able to continue to uh, cooperate if, if you keep having these kind of stereotype positions uh, towards each other 
It was a summer of riots and lawlessness in the mean streets of the Schellersweig, according to the Dutch media, or alternatively a couple of dozen teenagers spent two nights throwing rocks and eggs at police and beeping their car horns incessantly. Without wanting to condone vandalism in any way, it's also interesting to contrast uh, how the Dutch media, or what they call a riot, with the experience of people living in countries where they actually do have riots. <laughs> yes, uh, I what happened here? Those. What happened here was about 150 youths gathered in the streets of uh, the Schildersvijk, which is a relatively poor, ethnically mixed neighbourhood around Holland's small railway station, where there's often violence, especially in the summer months. They damaged some cars, they let off some fire hydrants, they threw some rocks and fireworks at the police when they showed up to restore order, and then they dispersed, and around about 30 arrests were made. Frankly, I've seen more egregious behaviour at the average cabinet minister's wedding. <laughs> there were God, we also... got, we're really funny today, guys. It's like we've saved it all up from the summer. I suppose <laughs> next week we're just going to be extremely boring yeah, and terrible. We'll be dull. Yeah, there'll yeah. be real news next week. Yeah. There were also, on a more serious note, there were also some pretty ugly scenes around the pier in Scheveningen, where a 19-year-old man was stabbed to death and youngsters were reported to be racing through the area in cars and on scooters, and city mayor Jan von Zanen came home early from his holiday to condemn the violence as unacceptable. So yeah, I mean, there was some bad, the, 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 there was some unrest and there was some youth, you know, it, it's not a good look, you don't want people to behave like that, but I think the word riot is maybe a little strong yeah, for what happened I, I agree in with the Hague this summer. Yeah, but what was the problem was that it sort of spread to others, other cities as well. Um, yeah, they, they kind of stepped up the violence, didn't they? Yeah. It's also in Utrecht's Canal Island uh, district. That was yeah, for example. Kind of and flashpoint, there were, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and there were other cities as well. So, yeah, that was sort of problematic to see how that would spread through the rest of the mm. country. But in the but end, again, it's, it's all... Yeah, it still didn't escalate that far, really, when you compare it with, you know, riots in, well, certainly the riots we've seen in the States. No, I thought so too, and especially if I compare the situation in the Schilderswijk with uh, what happened around New Year's Eve in um, Duindorp, for example. Yeah, for example. Then I thought it wasn't that bad. I thought the situation in in Duindorp was much worse than that. yeah, it's interesting yeah, these... to contrast the response to what happened in the Skeldersvake in the summer with the response to Downdorp. Because in, in Downdorp, of course, the people who were involved in the rioting got invited to talks with the mayor and to, you know, to, to try and sit down and work out how to, uh, how to kind of have like socially acceptable bonfires to dispel the... Um, you know, to, 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 to ease the tensions. We didn't really get much of that in the Skeldersvake. Gordon, really? question. <laughs> what is the biggest difference between the people who behaved badly at New Year's Eve and the people who were behaving badly in the Skildersvike? I can't think. What could, what, Paul, what, do you what have any thoughts be? about what the difference could be between these groups of these two groups of people? Perhaps their shoes? Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah. Shoes. Yeah, shoes are often a cause of known cause of rioting. I I think the thing that I was really surprised by in the Dutch media was how underplayed the role that the miserable heat wave that we were all in was like contributing to this because this was happening while it was like miserably 35 degrees and everyone was miserable. And I, who, you know, do not live in a poor neighborhood and I'm not a 25 year old boy and don't have, you know, have sort of everything to kind of maintain and live my life for. Um, also wanted to open up the fire hydrants <laughs> and smash some windows because it was miserably hot and I was miserable. Um, and I, I feel like at least in the American media, when there's like an uptick in violence over the summer, there's always a lot of discussions in the media about like how much of a role the heat plays in this, which is basically that, yeah, when people are hot and miserable and exhausted um, and teenagers aren't in schools, which is what happens over the summer, that like this is just always sort of like these things that 
that happen. Um, and here I felt like it was there was much less of a discussion about the heat, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, and your testosterone level is, of course, much lower than uh, those 20-year-old boys. in That uh, you know of, track, Paul. So, that yeah. you know of. <laughs> I just assumed your testosterone level. We are not presuming level. things about people's uh, gender situations on this podcast. It's not how it works. <laughs> Over the summer break, while we were away in our Hunabedden and not recording, we acquired a number of new patrons. In fact, as many as we acquired in the previous two months when we were recording. We're not sure if we should take that as an indictment of our podcasting skills, but all the same, we are very grateful, as ever, to our regular supporters for keeping up our stocks of coffee and dog food. We're going to carry over some of the new patrons until next week, because there really have been that many, so if you don't hear your name, don't worry, we haven't forgotten about you. Firstly, we say thank you and welcome to Aisha Miller, who's a student from the USA and is planning, or we should say hoping, to visit the Netherlands next year and maybe even move here once you graduated next year. Obviously, that's all a bit kind of tentative just now for uh, all kind of, for, for the obvious reasons, but we're crossing for fingers and holding thumbs for you there all the same. Next up is uh, Dalma Doman, who's from Hungary and has been living in Rotterdam for the last three years. She says, quote, this is the first time I finally found a platform in English. Well, you're doing better than defaults, come then. <laughs> Which is not only about staying up to date about what's happening, but also really entertaining. It's great to listen to you guys in the morning, going to work and tuning in a bit easier to the outside world. Um, I should explain that reference uh, that uh, earlier in the summer, the Volkskrant ran a, a story about how uh, some students in Utrecht had, ran, had, had started up the only English language um, uh, Twitter feed on the uh, government's coronavirus press conferences, which is a shock to those of us who have been Twitter feeding all of the press conferences since they started. I have not been live tweeting every miserable Corona press conference to be accused of not putting information out in English about Corona in this godforsaken swamp of a country. Then we have Michael Amos, who's in Minneapolis. He says, uh, quote, thank you for years of great content and lovely audio chemistry that makes every episode feel like dinner and drinks with friends. Um, you maybe need to get new friends, Michael. We should, I mean, should we tell people that we don't, none of us really like each other and we spend zero time <laughs> yeah, together outside of this podcast? Yeah, I mean, it was and such a relief when we didn't have to come to your house anymore. Yeah. Seriously, it's been so much better. <laughs> At least Michael's uh, drink part is correct. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. We let all our new patrons ask us a question. Uh, Michael uh, did that and he asked us, when I return to the Netherlands as a tourist, what should I do with my week that isn't in Amsterdam? It's a really good question because, of course, the Dutch question. tourist authorities are trying to basically disperse tourists away from Amsterdam. Yeah, that's their active policy, right? Yeah. Um, what I would do is, um, if you like art, uh, I always say uh, don't go to the Rijksmuseum because the, the lines are too long. The museum is also too big because you can never uh, cover everything in the in the short time that you have. But instead, go to the Maurits House in The Hague. That museum yeah. is also filled with artwork from um, the Dutch 17th century, with Rembrandts, with, uh, well, you name it, Vermeer. Um, but that museum is 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 uh, very compact. It's really, yeah. it's a perfect size. And you can you can uh, finish it in one and a half hours, two, two hours, and you have seen everything. And it's a really nice museum. It's, um, yeah. uh, so I would say go there and uh, have some Dutch culture and have some ho uh, Dutch uh, history over there. Uh, and then you can stroll around the Binnenhof and see how the Tweede Kamer looks like and uh, at Torensje, uh, where the Prime Minister's office is. Actually, from the Maurits House, you have a perfect view on the Torensje because it's located directly next to it. So, yeah, that's my tip. 
I also think that um, if you're going to do a, uh, a little tour of The Hague, that you should not miss the Mestog panorama, which is, like, quite close to the Moritz house and is, like, mm. a really cool little thing that some crazy guy basically built a giant panorama of the sea in his house, and now it is a museum, which is also, I think, a really pleasant little place to visit. Over the other side of the Binhof, we've got the Kafamakur Museum, which I would also uh, recommend highly. It's, it's, again, a very small museum, but it's a museum about, uh, in a former prison, where you can uh, find out all about um, uh, kind of prison conditions, political prisoners as well uh, in, in The Hague. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, from Dutch history, uh, and also, see, yeah, and uh, also another museum I'd really recommend that's out of Amsterdam is the Kula Munler Museum. Mm, the, oh, yeah. That's also a great tip. Yeah, yeah in in, in the uh, Hoogveluwe National Park in Otterlo, uh, which is, is and also the fact that it's in the it's in a national park. So once you've been around the museum, you can have a very pleasant afternoon going around on the on the white bicycles uh, that they have there. Um, the famous white bicycles. The famous white bicycles. Yeah. Yeah. I believe I'm not entirely sure about this, but I think the Krulle Muller Museum uh, has the second largest uh, collection of uh, Van Gogh paintings. I think that's right. In a that's world. correct. Yeah. 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 Also, of course, you should uh, hire a car and drive up and down the Hunabed Highway. I was going <laughs> to ask if you were going to try to promote the Hunabeda. I think, I mean, this person asked about a week. Like, so, I mean, Den Haag is a day or, or, or two days, maybe. I think um, I, I would suggest kind of trying to just go south generally, maybe do a night in, in The Hague, maybe two nights in The Hague, a night in Delft, which is also like a lovely, cute little town, um, a night or two in Rotterdam, which has a lot of, also has a lot of cool museums and a lot of cool like arts and cultural kinds of stuff. Good place to see like theater shows and this sort of thing. And then maybe a night in, I really like Breda as a city. I think yeah. it's really, um, really nice. Or uh, you could even go to Dordrecht, which is also really cute. Or, um, and just kind of see. Or Middelburg or Fl- uh, Flissinger. Yeah. Perhaps. Middleburg or Flissinger, yeah. like all of these towns are just really great for like weekends away, that kind of stuff. I mean, we've really, I've done a weekend away in Breda and a weekend away in Dordrecht and they're all like, I think really, really nice places to visit, to go. Uh, you know, you could go to Den Bosch and get a bus ball, like and go to mm. the the museum there. Um, that's like quite good. And yeah, there's like lots of good kind of cultural food sort of you know, nice things to eat and stuff for a weekend in a lot of like these smaller towns, um, especially uh, as as it will pain me to say this in Brabant. So I, I suggest mm. that. Uh, and the final patron we want to salute this week is uh, Austin Burbridge. Um, uh, uh, we didn't get any information about Austin, but thank you very much all the same for your support. If you'd like to join our team of patrons and access the summer special bonus episode, of course, while it's still light outside, log on to patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. There was a press conference this week, and absolutely nothing happened. So what else am I supposed to say, guys? <laughs> That's it. That's it. Well, all I got. Yeah, okay. That's it. Move on. Sign it off. Pack it in. We're going home. Yeah. Well, we're all already at home, but still. Uh, Ritta says that we should all be thankful that we can go out for a beer after a long day of work. Hugo de Younga continued to talk too much and say too little, and the only change was is that clubs still can't open, in part because young people who go to those clubs keep throwing fuck corona parties and getting infected with corona. Mm. The pair reiterated that the idea of future lockdowns will be regional. That prompted a lot of questions about how you keep people from leaving the infected lockdown area and just going to another place. One way of keeping track of those people will not be a Corona app because that's delayed again. Is this even worth mentioning because the app has done nothing but be delayed? We ran a poll on Twitter asking our readers if they thought we would get a Corona app before the sun explodes and destroys the planet. And I have to say, you all share my skepticism. 
that this country's car salesman turned health minister can get it done. <laughs> also, there's not enough testing, and nobody seems to have a good reason for why there's not enough testing. Yeah. In good news, uh, infections are down, hospitalizations are down, and the magical R number is under one. Uh, plus, now there are better treatments that seem to be helping. So, mm. a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah, well, the R number's under one because it's under it's 0.99, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's under, under one. one. Yeah, it is under one, technically under one. And the numbers kind of flatlined last week to this week, didn't it? And we had this curious thing yesterday where we suddenly leapt up to over 700 again, but they said, oh, there's a technical issue. Oh, really? But yeah, apparently IVM said that a lot of uh, Tuesday's numbers were counted on Wednesday by mistake. But even if you factor that in, you add up Tuesday and Wednesday's numbers, it's still not... It's kind of levelling off. And levelling off at a level where if it starts to go up again from here, pretty quickly getting get into more uh, serious numbers. So there's maybe no um, kind of reason to be alarmed, but uh, it, it's kind of in a quite precarious situation just now, I think. What was supposed to be the happiest day in his life turns into a political nightmare for Justice Minister and our favorite Bond villain, Vert Grapperhaus. He married last month in Bloemendaal, but paparazzi photos showed him and other guests hugging, shaking hands and standing very close to each other, in other words, breaking social distancing rules. The photos were very awkward for the justice minister because it was he who drafted the social distancing rules and it is his responsibility for enforcing them. Uh, earlier, Grapperhaus also called people who broke the rules also shall, which basically means that they are assholes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it sort of directly yeah. translates to like anti-social, but it 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 means asshole. Yeah. Hmm. Justice uh, Deputy Minister Anki Bukus Knoll, who attended I'm sorry, the who? Anki Bukus Knoll. I'm sorry. Anki Bukus Knoll. Anki Bukus Knoll. She uh, attended the wedding and she told reporters that guests maintained their distances throughout the wedding and that they broke the rules only once or twice. And that was coincidentally the moment that was captured on camera. She also added that she could know because she was there. Grapperhaus released an apology on Twitter stating that he felt sorry for breaking the rules but insisting the distancing rules were followed almost the entire day. And he also promised to donate 780 euros to the uh, Red Cross, which is twice the fine he should have gotten for breaking the rules. And then the murders began, by which I mean, <laughs> then more photos were released. Indeed. Um, that was done by the same photographer who had made the, the, the photos before. Uh, he released them two days later in order to, quote, earn money from the photos twice. Um, Gotta respect the guy's honesty, at least. Indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, the photos clearly showed the social distancing rules were broken on more than one or two occasions, meaning that both Grapperhaus and Anke Broekers Knoll were not completely honest in their statements. Uh, many people didn't blame Grapperhaus because, after all, it was his own wedding, but others were very critical, especially the ones who were already fined or didn't attend the wedding or funeral of a loved one because of the rules. Uh, and then there were also, that was the mo most interesting spin I read, the, the, the conspiracy theorist who saw in Grapperhaus's wedding proof that the virus didn't exist at all because, you know, he didn't uh, believe in the rules himself, so it must be, uh, it must be mm. fake. Um, yeah. Uh, and also after the second wave of, uh, of photos, politicians started to doubt the credibility of the justice minister, especially because the paparazzo also announced that there were more photos coming up. Um, luckily for the MPs, a debate in the Tweede Kamer on the government's tackling of the coronavirus was already scheduled the next day. Yeah, luckily for them, but not so fortunate for Fred Kaphaus, because yeah. uh, 
And of course, instead of issues such as problems with the testing capacity, we then had a debate that uh, was completely dominated by the row over the Fred Hopperhouse's wedding. Indeed, and MPs said the Hopperhouse uh, actions have undermined the government's strategy to deal with coronavirus. And they also pointed out that the minister lost a lot of authority on, um, on the issue. Uh, other MPs said his actions were a slap in the face for everyone who have sacrificed uh, so much uh, following the rules uh, in the past six months. A visibly emotional Hopperhouse apologized for his actions to MPs. He said he had prepared the wedding according to the rules, but had been carried away on the day itself. It didn't go well, he told MPs, and regretted inviting guests to the ceremony. Uh, MPs were willing to forgive the minister for his mistakes, and uh, in exchange, Hopperhouse promised to ensure a fine for breaking the social distancing rules uh, will not uh, result automatically in, criminal, in a criminal record anymore. So what we had here was we had the Minister for Justice who drafted a law um, about the social distancing rules and not shaking hands and all the rest of it, then stands up at a press conference and says everyone who breaks the rules is asocial, is an asshole, and says it in quite sort of angry, full Bond villain mode. <laughs> then holds his wedding, flagrantly breaks these rules, not just once or twice fleetingly, as you know lots of people have done, but kind of shakes hands with people, hugs his mother-in-law, then lies about it when it's first talked about. And then when it comes to the debate in Parliament and the question of whether he should lose his job and whether he should resign... Um, everyone, so the, the opposition MPs say, ah, well, you know, we've all done it, haven't we? Yeah. I'm just kind of perplexed, really. And what do you have to do to lose your job as a minister, if, if not that? Lose like a bonnet, yeah. Blowing up, uh, yeah, lose a bonnet, or lie about bombing civilians in uh, Afghanistan. That's also, uh, that's also a thing that'll get you. Um, I, the th you know, I wasn't that mad about this until yesterday, basically. And when I was out sitting in a cafe trying to get some work done, watching across the street from me a wedding party trying to take photos and maintain the social distance, which included, which I thought was quite funny, the who I presume was the maid of honor, chucking a bunch of Kleenex at the groom, ostensibly to, like, clean something off of his suit, which then just, like, blew away in the wind in, like, a comic move. <laughs> and it was like, you know, these people are really making their lives more difficult and trying to at least adhere to these rules. And, you know, this guy just like, does not care. And then I came home to find out that my neighbors uh, have to cancel their wedding this weekend because they came in contact with somebody who has corona. And so they're doing the right thing and they're losing all the money that they put down for the deposit on this place and everything else because they're going to do the right thing. And it's just like, I cannot believe that he's going to continue to stand up there and try to enforce this kinds of stuff. It just seems so hypocritical. And I'm really kind of annoyed at the opposition for not taking a more strong stance against this. I think people are really mad about this stuff. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stories like the one you tell around the country of people who've made sacrifices, big and small, not seen relatives for months on end. Yeah, even the prime minister you know, didn't see his mother when she was dying. And then you see the minister of justice being... Uh, d d just thinking because the cameras are off he can just you know ignore the rules like he's off duty so he doesn't have to follow them and everyone else well, he's made the point forcibly to everyone else you have to everyone has to follow them all the time and now it seems everyone's followed them except the justice minister at his wedding it's, and the it's just thing bizarre. I think that's so fucking annoying about this is that like he has the money to postpone the wedding right like this hmm. isn't a situation where like you're not going to get your deposit back and that's really going to break the bank on your wedding budget like clearly they are successful people 
So you could have just postponed this or better, you could have had this wedding in a location where you were doing this stuff inside where you're much less likely to get busted. It's like, not only did he not give a shit about the rules, but he also like didn't give a shit about trying to make it seem like he was adhering to the rules. They weren't even trying, it feels like. Yeah, and there's an aspect of it there as well where a lot of them, even opposition MPs are coming out and saying, ah, oh, well, it was paparazzi pictures anyway. You know, what were they doing there? You know, if, if they hadn't, if we hadn't seen the pictures, we'd never have known. But that's not really the point. It's not the it's point. A, it's, a, it's a virus, for fuck's sake. Yeah. If, which by definition is invisible. So whether, you, whether you're <laughs> looking or not, you'll still spread the infection to people. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What I, what I thought was interesting uh, when the uh, Dominic Cummings... Um, uh, saga uh, emerged oh, yeah. a couple of months mm. ago in the UK. Um, a lot of um, Dutch people said he must resign. But when a similar thing happens, I mean, it wasn't as as dramatic as Dominic as, as what Dominic Cummings did, of course. But um, still, it's interesting to see that when it happens to a Dutch politician, the same people do not call for the resignation of, yeah. of this man. I yeah. thought that was also very interesting. And it's kind of maddening as well that the Cup House didn't even get fined for it, even no. though there, are, there, are, there is evidence that he's broken the rules here. And yet there are people who... The, 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 there's a famous cake incident, isn't there, where the, the, the four people... No, the, the, owners of a, uh, the owners of a cake shop uh, down in, I think it was Bray Dow or somewhere, um, uh, had, uh, had a couple of um, uh, friends come in and they wanted to have cake together. And they thought, we'll take the cake outside because, you know, in the shop we're a bit too close together. Um, so that's not very safe. So we'll go outside and eat it. And of course, a couple of boas came along and slapped them immediately with a fine. Each of them had to pay 400 euros. So a 1600 euro fine altogether. Yeah. And yet, actually, if they'd stayed in the, if they stayed in the shop, they'd impose more of a danger because, oh. you know, the virus circulates more indoors. It's just nonsense. Yeah, so those yeah. people get a fine and they didn't get any... You know, although Krapperhouse said, you know, fines are only for people who point-blank refuse to follow the rules, these people, by all accounts, just you know, got, got... As soon as Aboa saw them, they decided they were going to find them on the spot because they were yeah. in a group of more than three people outside. Yeah, and imagine being a boa now when whenever you are walking around and you <laughs> see someone breaking the rules. Uh, would you feel comfortable finding those people, even though they are breaking the rules, if you know that uh, the one who is uh, in charge of you uh, is breaking them himself yeah. as well. I mean, mm. I don't want, I don't envy being a boa right now. I mean, I don't ever, ever being a boa. No, you don't ever um, envy that. But, but at yeah, least not no, having these really sort true. of discussions with uh, with the people you are uh, while you are just doing your job. So yeah, um, I think they, uh, I think the politicians and Rapperhaus and also Rutte sort of underestimated how um, pissed uh, people are. How pissed people yeah. are on this and uh, how 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 people are really feeling about it. I think. On to sports news, because there has been sport this summer while no one was looking. <laughs> Literally. The Champions League football tournament was played out in empty stadiums, but it had big consequences for the Netherlands national football team, because after Bayern Munich thrashed Barcelona 8-2 in the quarterfinals, the Catalan club sat their head coach, Kike Setien, and got straight on the phone to Ronald Koeman. Koeman is contracted, or was contracted, to coach Rania until the end of 2021, but he had a clause written into his contract with the Dutch FA referring to just one, <laughs> naming one, one football club and one football club only who he could leave to go and join if they came calling. This football club uh, was a former employer of his, begins with B and ends in Barcelona. <laughs> and so once the job came up and Koeman was approached, he promptly jumped ship, even though he said a few months ago he had no intention of doing so. And that leaves the team without a coach as it prepares to play its first finals tournament in seven years. And uh, wasn't there a little bit of upheaval when uh, he signed the contract and it was leaked that this clause was uh, 
was in it. Um, yes, back in the time. Well, the, the clause only came to light, I think, about a year after he'd been in the job. When um, I think the last time Barcelona sat the coach, um, I think there were then rumours around that Kuma oh. might join. And uh, at that point, it, it emerged that he had this clause. His agent had got this clause written in, especially. I mean, Kuman is... Uh, uh, is a folk here at Barcelona because he scored a very important goal that won the European Cup years ago. Uh, and so he's got a very close um, uh, attachment to it. And so he'd always said, uh, he made it no secret of the fact that if Barcelona ever wanted to appoint a manager, he would want to go. So yeah, there was up here for the time. So who has been put forward as a possible replacement for Kuman, And is it Dick Lawyer? Well, um, <laughs> I wondered if you were going to mention that before me. but uh, Of yeah. course. Frank, Frank de Boer uh, was one of the first names mentioned, uh, mainly by his brother Ronald, who's a TV pundit. Uh, Frank de Boer was a former Ajax coach, out of work just now because he was sacked by Atlanta United in July. have to say his uh, CV since leaving Amsterdam isn't exactly uh, glittering. He lasted 85 days into Milan before he was fired. And then he beat that record when he went to Crystal Palace in the English Premier League and was sacked after 10 weeks. And Jose Mourinho described him as the worst manager in the history of the Premier League. Wow. So... That's one contender. Uh, another one is Philip Cocu, um, who won the Eredivisie a couple of times with PSV, and Giovanni van Bronckhorst, who won the Eredivisie with Feyenoord recently, or Peter Boss, who is also a former Ajax coach now at Bayer Leverkusen in Germany. The alternative has been suggested uh, to go for experience. There's been talk of Louis van Gaal coming out of retirement to coach the team for a year, or even perhaps a fourth stint at the helm for Dick Advocat. My favorite. So watch this space. Yeah. Let's, let's hope. I lo- a girl can dream. <laughs> I loved um, this tweet. I don't know. I can't remember who, who sent it, but uh, it was a tweet with the list of, of the last uh, Oranje coaches. Uh, and it had names as Guus uh, Hedink, Louis van Gaal, Dick Advocaat, etc., etc. And the, the tweet read, according to the Oranje coach algorithm, the next coach should be uh, Guus van Advocaat. Yes. I, I loved it. I loved that tweet. That was very funny. Yeah. Yeah, that was very good. That was very well done. Um, and uh, in other news, in other sports news, the Tour de France has also started. Yes, uh, shifted to September because of Corona. Obviously, usually the Tour de France is uh, is in July at the uh, at the height of the summer holidays. But this is a very strange tour with shorter stages, no crowds on the mountainsides, although a handful of hardcore Frenchmen dressed up in bird costumes are still permitted, <laughs> with masks on. This what kind true. of birds? Uh, a domino mission or other, uh, other birds? No, I, th- I think larger birds, mm. kind of, uh, you know, the things you find in mountains, eagles, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, and the ever-present threat, of course, of teams being kicked out if two of their riders fail a coronavirus test within seven days of each other. Well, given the track record of cyclists and drug tests, <laughs> I'm not quite sure if uh, that, that's uh, really going to be the most reliable measure of uh, where corona is in the sea. Well, we're going to find out in years to come that sort of every every single rider in the in the Tour de France had corona, but they all covered it up i mean they probably still have some of uh what's his face is like blood floating around right like it's yeah. not even that hard that, that it turns yeah. out that they have pumped uh, corona infected blood into their veins exactly because uh, you know that because that, 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 because once they recover they've got uh, stronger yeah. um, <laughs> immune systems or yeah. something I don't know. the antidotes awesome. are uh, helping them uh, yeah. climb yeah. the mountains they, they, yeah. they've been injecting corona infected blood into themselves at midnight <laughs> and then yeah in the absence of Stephen Kreisweg, Dutch hopes are weighing heavily on the shoulders of Tom Dumoulin. He may end up playing a supporting role for his Jumbo Fisma teammate Primoz Roglic. The Slovenian won the only stage so far to feature any real climbing and looks in very good form, while Dumoulin only returned to racing three weeks ago, more than a year after he crashed out of the Giro d'Italia and damaged his knee. The riders are due to arrive in Paris on September the 20th, Covid permitting. 
That's all that we have for you uh, this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Uh, you can earn yourself a free shout out if you do. My thanks to Gordon Tarek and Molly Quell. I'm Paul Peters and we'll be back next week. Thank you.